Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Hi, everyone. I have a really special episode for you this week. Today is the 300th episode of Cog Dog Radio. When I started it, seven years ago, I had no idea how many of you would listen, how many of you would find me because of it, or just how big of a part of my life and career it would be. So I want to open the episode by thanking you, whether this is your first time listening to CogDog Radio or your 300th time listening. I thought for this special landmark episode, I would go through some things that I've changed my mind about in the last seven years. One of the risks of putting out content constantly is that I will put something out, I will change my mind about it, And yet people will still do what I said back then or hold it against me that I said something a certain way. So while I'm sure I've changed my mind about a lot more than just the stuff here, this is some stuff that has come up in the podcast and some stuff I think is important to talk about. So first, let's go through some things I've changed my mind about in regards to those early case studies I covered on the podcast. In the case of Jade, the Golden Retriever, who would engage in pretty severe handler-directed aggression during dog agility. The biggest thing that I would change is that I would implement what I call a show-me protocol, which is essentially what Shade Whitesell calls a ready-to-work protocol, in that I want the dog to show me that they are capable of keeping themselves under control and keeping their emotions regulated in the task at hand. At the time, what I knew how to do was babysit his arousal and keep it low for him. Whereas today, I would really insist that he control himself in order to access agility, and I would teach him how to do that out of context before I put it in context. That stuff is going to come out in the new worked up course which I'm planning to release this fall. But of course, I'll let you all know about that when it's coming. In regards to the case study about Prime, the Border Collie, I no longer believe that I'm ever operating in a feelings-only model or a straight classical conditioning model. I now recognize how intimately intertwined classical and operant conditioning are. And I am much smarter about the way that I apply the principles of each when I'm training dogs. Jade and Prime are both old guys now, but they're both still with us. They're both with their original owners, living their best old man lives. And I'm lucky to get to see them on social media. Now, Kevin, the white shepherd, isn't with us anymore. And I don't have a lot of changed thoughts about his case. 
I still believe strongly in feeding fresh food to dogs, but I have become more flexible in this recommendation and I have been quieter in this recommendation. My flexibility is about recognition of the accessibility of these diets for people. My quietness is about the fact that people are just plain mean on the internet when it comes to dog food. I still think fresh food is best, whether it's raw or cooked. Those are my primary changed opinions regarding those early case studies. And if you haven't listened to those, I think they're still worth a lot. I think there's a lot of good information in them, and they are the reason that the podcast took off running. Now just a few random things I've changed my mind on. At one point in an early episode, I mentioned that the function of aggression is always distance. That the function of aggression is always to gain distance from the trigger. I now understand that not to be true. And in fact, anytime anybody says always or never, they're probably not totally correct. I now recognize that there are a lot of reasons for aggressive behaviors and that actually assessing the function is vital to success rather than assuming that you know. I mentioned in an episode about hunty dogs and decompression walks that I wanted these dogs to be allowed to get their hunting out. I wanted them to just go ahead and be hunty out in the world. I now have a much better understanding of the impact that that might have on wildlife And also, I do not see those dogs decompressing in the way that I actually want them to. So now I would encourage a combination of high-intensity exercise, hunting-style enrichment activities, and decompression walks that might need to be on a long line for these types of dogs. You all know that I call Border Collie stalking behaviors sticky-stocky bullshit. Early on in the podcast, I described those behaviors as modal action patterns, which basically means that they are instinctual and unchangeable, that they are mostly fixed or hard to change. I have since successfully changed them many times in my Border Collie clients and in my own dogs. It is not easy to do, but it can be done. The... Current thinking on modal action patterns is that they're maybe not real. And so if you're curious about this, I would encourage you to look into current thinking on modal action patterns and make up your own mind. Regardless, if you're struggling with SSBS, sticky stocky bullshit, there is hope. When I started the podcast, I opened it with the three case studies that I've referenced so far, and then I went into a series on puppies. I have a couple of changed opinions on puppies now, and one of them is that I don't mind if a breeder makes a profit on selling a puppy. I had mentioned previously that I didn't think that a person could be doing a good enough job if they turned a profit. Since then, I have witnessed fantastic breeders who are able to do just that. And so breeder profit no longer factors in on my decision-making process when I'm buying a puppy. I also mentioned in one of those episodes, and this will be hysterically funny to any of you who know me personally, that it's not a good idea to pick a puppy solely on looks. 
And while I wouldn't say that I ever pick puppies on only what they look like, it is a huge factor for me. And all else considered, I often do pick on looks. Some of my thoughts and opinions have changed regarding puppy rearing protocols, but that's probably for another episode entirely with an expert. And I'm still eternally grateful to Jane messonia Linquist, aka Jane Killian, for coming on the podcast so early and chatting with me about puppies. She was my first podcast guest, and I still massively respect all the work she has done with puppy culture. Over three years ago, I released a series called Barky Lungy 101. Most of that series still stands as far as my reactivity work and protocols. Difference being, I would implement more deliberate management protocols, and I would train the management procedures to the dogs out of context. I highly recommend Dr. Amy Cook's class reactivity management on that topic. When I do dog park TV these days, I structure it. I structure it usually with foraging or scent projects so that the dogs are not finding the dogs in the dog park to be the most interesting or relevant thing in the environment. And I am less likely to allow a reaction to play out if I have trained the dog how to divert their attention away from their trigger and back to me, I will prompt them to do so mid-reaction. And I have a lot of different ways that I go about that now. About a year and a half into podcasting, it occurred to me that I should set up a Patreon. Somebody suggested it. I went ahead and did it. And we've been an active group with hundreds of members ever since. One of the features of the show is that I answer Patreon questions at the end of each episode. The questions often fuel the content, and I told them I was doing this I've Changed My Mind episode. They tailored their questions to reflect that topic, and here they are. The first one comes from Taylor, and Taylor has been a listener almost from the beginning. Taylor writes, I know you've talked about it from the beginning, but any new changes to the it's a friend hiking protocol? (laughs) I say it just like that when I want my dogs to approach an unknown person or dog. I have not changed it. I still cue my dogs to approach with the cue it's a friend if a greeting is imminent and I am not going to avoid it. So if somebody is approaching with their dog, they're not collecting their dog, their dog looks okay to me, I will cue my dogs, it's a friend. The reason I do that is because I also teach them the cue, not now. And that cue means you're not going to visit at this time. I find that this is really helpful for dogs who have big feelings about other dogs approaching. I say it's a friend in a very lighthearted tone. I greet the dog, I put my hand on my spray shield just in case, and we all try to breathe through it and get through it. My dog's ability to roll with unknown dogs approaching us has improved immensely since that began for us. The next one is from Lauren. Lauren's been a listener for about a year and a half. Lauren writes, How have your approaches evolved with regards to dog park TV or perhaps execution of dog park TV is a better rephrase of the question. 
So as I mentioned a minute ago, I now structure dog park TV, but let me talk about why. When I have highly focused, highly kind of trainee dogs, they're very frustrated by not receiving any input from their person or not receiving any direct reinforcement. I want those dogs to also be in a relaxed state taking in dog park TV for those dogs providing the structure of a nose work search or perhaps a track or just food scattered everywhere for them to snuffle and find has been extremely helpful. The next one comes from Trini. Trini is a fairly new listener, but has hopped all over the place and has probably listened to podcasts from each year that they've been out. She writes, I wonder if you have changed your approach to encouraging dogs to enter the water slash swim. I think I remember you saying you like to toss some kibble in the water for the dog to go after. My concern with this method is that the dog could chase the kibble into deeper water than it was equipped to handle and for that to become a scary event. Trini, I probably did say that and I will do that sometimes or I'll toss Cheerios because they float. I don't toss them so far that the dog is going to go out deeper than they've been before. But also, universally, even if the dogs are really into food, they don't go further than they can handle. They don't go past where they can touch if they can't swim. My favorite way to get dogs to go in the water or swim is to take them out with dogs who love swimming. They learn really well from each other that swimming is fun and safe. In any case, universally, I find that dogs either like swimming or they don't. Some of them who don't like swimming are motivated enough to swim if you throw a toy or perhaps food, but still don't enjoy it. And for those dogs, I just don't make them. And for the dogs that aren't even motivated enough by food or toys to go do it, I certainly don't make them. And a second one from Trini, who writes again, Do you still recommend the pet tutor or manners minder type device with crating? You mentioned recently that you don't click and treat relaxation and you've always said you don't make the crate a working space, but with the device spitting out treats occasionally, I wonder if the dog will stay on alert waiting for the next treat rather than relaxing. Trini, if I said that I use that tool, then I probably qualified it with only four dogs who do not go into work mode with that tool. But it is not a tool that I use or ever, ever have used extensively for crate training. And we've got another one from Lauren who writes, I'm curious about if and how your perspective on off-leash time in nature has changed. Have you always felt this strongly about the importance of dogs having regular access to this type of free movement? Or is it something that has evolved over the course of your career? Lauren, I have felt very strongly about dogs having regular access to off-leash exercise in nature basically my entire career. My feelings about it intensified when I saw it helping my client dogs, and essentially each case in which it was taken seriously and the people were able to commit to it and do it, my feelings intensified even more. So my perspective has probably only become stronger, although it was strong from the get-go. This next one comes from Elise. Elise has been listening for about a year and says the podcast gave her the confidence to enter the world of dog agility, and I'm so happy for that, Elise. She writes, In a recent episode, I think the interview with Ashley Johnson, you and your guest chat about how they prioritize building a strong bond with their dog as a puppy or adolescent and did not expose it to certain things until it was more mature. 
For instance, the dog didn't meet a young child until well beyond puppyhood. This was really interesting. It feels like a contrast to a lot of the immediately expose your puppy to everything advice that's out there. How have your opinions on socialization slash new experiences with young dogs changed over time? This is a great question, Elise, and they have evolved quite a bit because originally my opinions were everything I had been taught, which is that the dog must experience everything that they're going to need to be comfortable with early and often. And I now believe strongly that if it's something the dog doesn't have the skill to handle, then it's not about exposure. It's about teaching the skill. So my dog might need to get exposure to other dogs, people, walking on different surfaces, eating food in a variety of environments, playing with toys in a variety of environments. They don't need exposure to, say, a forced air dryer or a toddler even. What they need in those cases, in my opinion, is skills and a relationship with me that tells them that I'm trustworthy. Sometimes I don't know which one's going to be which. For some dogs, early exposure to children inoculates them against being too stressed out about children. For other dogs, it doesn't. And they're going to need skill and they're going to need to be able to trust you in order to tolerate children. This probably warrants a full episode at some point, but that's my answer for now. Next one is from Kristen, and Kristen has been here in Cogdoglandia for... close to the whole time, if not the entire time. Kristen writes, I'd love to know if your perspective for duration reward markers has changed or keep going signals or both. Kristen, I'll tell you what my thoughts are on it today. I may have had various thoughts throughout the years. I don't think they varied a ton, but this is what I think today. A duration reward marker, or as some people call a room service marker, which basically means stay there, I'm bringing you the reinforcement, is something that I use really frequently in my practice with my dogs. My word is good said exactly like that. When I say good, I have taught the dog that I'm bringing them food and I'm going to deliver it to their mouth in a specific way. And so they should be still. I use it in a variety of circumstances, essentially to encourage the dog to remain still. A keep going signal is just as it sounds. It's a signal that tells the dog they're on the correct path to reinforcement, but they need to keep doing what they're doing. It's something that most people are not using super well or believe they're using, but they're not, or they're being sloppy with it. A lot of times we accidentally teach dogs that just praise means that. That's confusing if praise sometimes means take reinforcement. And so interestingly enough, my most used keep going signal because I tend not to use them for active behaviors, but I do tend to use them for stillness behaviors is simply the word wait. And I have taught the word wait separately with the room service marker. So I'll tell the dog, wait, they're still, I mark good. I bring food straight to them. And now I use the word wait. Is it as a cue to hold still? Or is it as a cue to keep going towards your reinforcement? I'm going to say that it's both, and I'm going to say it can be both, primarily in cooperative care or grooming situations. I might pick up a paw, go to do a toenail. The dog might get fidgety. I will say, wait. The dog will offer me stillness. I will do the nail. I will mark release out of the behavior feed. That's an example. That's my most relevant, trained, keep going signal. And I reserve the right to change my mind, and I'll let you know at the 600th episode. Next one comes from Aaliyah. 
Aaliyah writes, I'm curious on whether your perspective on decompression has changed at all with dogs that don't find exploring in nature to be particularly decompressing. I know that decompression is different for every dog, but are you more inclined to provide a plan of mixed high and low intensity activities now? For instance, bike joring and then off-leash walks instead of just jumping to off-leash. This entirely depends on the case, and that's why it's very important to look at how the dog that you are actually working with is responding. I think off-leash exercise works so well for my personal dogs because they can engage in high-intensity exercise and then go into decompression-style exercise. If they were sprinting or hunting the entire time they were out off-leash, they probably wouldn't be decompressing, and I would need to do that high-intensity activity as well as the decompression-type activity. So I would say that the only perspective that's changed here for me is I'm much more open to the possibility that this will need to be paired with high intensity activity in order to gain access to the lower intensity activity. But I am always inclined to try the dog off leash first before anything else. And the last question comes from Jackie. Jackie's been here for two and a half years. Thanks, Jackie. She writes, curious on off leash stuff as well. Your earlier episodes seemed more let them off, they'll run like crazy, like a starved person at a cruise buffet, and then they'll almost certainly come back. (laughs) Well, it feels to me like now you have moderated your view to long line walks being pretty good, using sniff spots or other safe alternatives, etc., instead of just everyone needs to be off leash, make it happen no matter what. Has your guidance changed, and if so, why? Jackie, my feelings on off leash exercise being a necessity for dogs and their well-being has not changed. I still stand really strong in that. My acceptance of the accessibility issue that plagues many people is what has changed. And so if we can't let the dog off leash, I'm asking, what do we do to make the long line walk good enough? Because it won't be inherently good enough for very many dogs. I love sniff spot, and I think a lot of sniff spots can be used really well for this, as long as they are nature heavy and the dog is doing a lot of running around and free movement and sniffing. So my guidance with my clients is a lot more like, this is what I think is ideal. What do you think you can do? And then we meet in the middle. And if they don't think they can let the dog off leash ever, I do push them. We find options. We find sniff spots. We figure it out. Or sometimes we find a way to make sure that that long line walk is actually going to serve its purpose. And that usually means high intensity exercise comes first and then the long line walk comes second. To close out this 300th episode of Cog Dog Radio, if you're not a patron, I do hope you'll join us. And you know that link is in the show notes, but it is patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And I also hope... Whether you're a patron or not, you will consider joining the CogDog Classroom membership community. You will have access to all of my material over there and the discussion forum where we have the most amazing talks. We've recently talked about how to cooperatively put a harness on a dog. We've talked about really rough adolescent stuff. A lot of people going through adolescent stuff over there. We watched a member solve her dog's health problem that was contributing to her training problems. And there's just so much more. If you've listened up to this point, I have a gift for you. You can join the membership, use the coupon code 300EP, that's 300, capital E, capital P, 
when registering for an annual membership and you will get $200 off. And that's because I love you and you listen to this entire episode and you listen to any episodes of Cogdog Radio. We would love to have you over there. Please join us. And I just hope that you will listen for another 300. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.